Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know. Today, I've got an amazing guest. I think one of my heroes and idols of recent years. It's late coming to him. I'm your host, Amal Sarva. I'm the founder of Notel, and I have today with me, Philip Tetlock, who is a professor with a bunch of appointments, Penn and Wharton, arts and sciences, and I guess a psychologist by training, primarily so? Yeah, a, lo- a long time ago, I did get a PhD in psychology. That's true. Yeah, and so, I mean, academic psychology back in the day was a whole bunch of, like, core cognitive traits developments, perhaps, about um, some of the mechanics of, of the mind, like the magic number seven plus or minus two and all that over the years. And is that the sort of dimension of psychology that you came up in as you were a student? So I was certainly familiar with George Miller's work on short-term memory and the limits on short-term memory, the seven plus or minus two. So I got my PhD in 1979, which is 40 years ago now. And I got my first job at Berkeley that was an era in which the Kahneman and Tversky work was beginning to seep very deeply into the field I was in. And so heuristics and biases, a very major theme of the work in the um, 1980s. So you were sort of in the room as these big things were starting to move through psychology departments, because it ends up being behavioral economics, Nobel Prizes, like it's almost a dominant ideology of the day. Economic pain. That's true. Uh, I mean, Kahneman Tversky's Prospect Theory was published in 1979, and they were having a big influence on a lot of psychologists. I guess my initial reaction to that work was A, I was amazed by how ingenious it was and how robust some of the effects were. There was a bit of a contrarian in me. I was interested in exploring whether it would be possible to to check certain categories of biases. Because it's like 20 years after that work that I guess I ran into it, because that's when I was in graduate school in philosophy. And at that point, it was starting to be a hot topic in uh, philosophy of mind. And I guess we were coming to it late. By then, we would have already been building on some of the research you were developing. Because yeah, heuristics, biases, how do decisions get made? Can rationality produce the truth? Uh, and then, you know, reasoning well beyond economic settings, where I think there's some really tangible experiments that you can do. It starts to become a little trickier on things like virtue and uh, ethical judgments and aesthetic judgments. Right. What was the angle that, that you developed? It was, it was the political judgment stuff first? or I started off an assistant professor at Berkeley in, in the summer of 1979. You know, I worked my way up through the ranks. Uh, in, in the mid-1980s, I guess in 1987 or so, Berkeley hired Danny Kahneman and, and his wife, Ann Treisman. And that was a, a big development. And the, the conversations with Danny certainly influenced how I went about the work you know, that's reported in the book, Expert Political Judgment. How good is it? How can we know? I, I remember we had, over um, lunch at a, at a Chinese restaurant in Berkeley, he, he made a side remark and he said, he thought, well, the, the average political expert he suspected probably wouldn't be much more accurate than an attentive reader of the New York Times. I'm sure the reader of the New York Times would agree with that, but the, the policymaker might not. Well, not just policymakers, but, you know, the people who have PhDs in China studies or, or Russian studies or, or whatnot. The, the people who have major career investments in being subject matter experts and being consulted by large companies, intelligence agencies, and so forth. Yeah, so I guess you start investigating that in, in this book, which had a big impact on me this last couple of years. I got to it a bit late, I guess, expert political judgment reports, I guess, like 20 years of work that you have done, perhaps for the first time in a somewhat popular way. Is that how you would have thought about that book? 
The expert political, that's right. First studies I did were even before Danny arrived in 1984, 85, just as Gorbachev was coming to power in the Soviet Union. And there were really big disagreements among U.S. experts on the Soviet Union, big disagreements in general around the world about the Soviet, opinions about the Soviet Union, whether it was going to move in a reformist direction, whether it was going to move in a more conservative, even neo-Stalinist direction, or whether it was going to more or less stay the same. The interesting thing about that debate struck me was that even though liberals and conservatives you know, had very different policy prescriptions for how to deal with the Soviet Union, each side had no difficulty whatsoever in explaining what happened later. The conservatives before the fact were essentially predicting no change because they thought the Soviet system was self-reproducing. The totalitarian systems can reproduce themselves pretty effectively. And, and so why would it change? And, and the liberals were arguing that either there, there would be no change or things might get worse because Reagan was provoking the Soviets and they would move into neo-Stalinist retrenchment. So neither side really expected a dramatic reformist initiative of the sort that Gorbachev represented in March 1985. And then, of course, the collapse a few years later. I mean, it's such a great potted experiment, a natural experiment, let's say, right? Yeah, no, that one, too. After it became apparent that Gorbachev was a real reformer, each side was able to claim that they could easily explain it, and it fit perfectly within their worldview. The liberals would argue that, well, the Soviet economy was crumbling, and there, there was, this was an endogenous thing. It was inside the Soviet. It had nothing to do with Reagan. Reagan didn't deserve any credit. And the conservatives were claiming, of course, that Reagan had produced the whole thing, even though they were very skeptical that the Soviet Union was capable of reforming itself. So neither side really came close to predicting it. Both sides could easily explain it. And that's the, that's the asymmetry that exists in, in a lot of economic and political forecasting. You see it every day with the stock market, right? Nobody knows what's going to happen to the stock market in the morning, but four o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time, everybody has an explanation or set of explanations for why things happen. Yeah, they're just so stories. Or I guess they're, um, to borrow the Thomas Kuhn language, these are um, systems that defend themselves by adding a few little curly cues without necessarily providing the explanatory power in advance. I think that's a good analogy. They're very, they're very skillful, actually, at defending their belief systems. This is incredible. So you are doing this work on judgment. The world provides this colossal mistake that everybody made on all sides. And then you watch everyone look how wrong they are and explain it away as confirming the theory that they had leading into the event. This is, so you're sitting there gobsmacked by the events of the 1980s and the sort of Kremlinologists on both sides of the spectrum. It's this combination that before the fact, things are radically unpredictable and that after the fact, things seem retrospectively inevitable. And so as you go, and so, I mean, my interest in this area, part of why I'm investigating it with you and, and, and you're so kind to, to share your thinking is, um, of course, as you know, predicting the future is something we do all day long in, in, in every area of concern and, and certainly in business and in entrepreneurship. And this in the No series is, um, well, just me as an entrepreneur. I left the field of philosophy a long time ago and um, have been working and starting companies, uh, I guess, you know, for maybe like 15 or 18 years. Some of them quite big. Uh, Virgin Mobile became really big. The company I run right now, Notel, is getting quite big. It's the biggest thing I've ever been involved in and certainly the biggest thing that I've had a chance to run. It's hundreds of millions in revenue and all these hundreds of people all around the world. And then, of course, I've started a bunch of things that went exactly nowhere or worse. They kind of got going and then blew up and, and lost lots of money. And, you know, I really can't say beforehand ever on any of these which ones are going to work or not work. I mean, there is some source of conviction in all of these. And as I've come to the, the, the question itself, just the core question of 
when you want to start a business or, or try to attack a problem or, or build some kind of concern, whether it's a movement or a political organization or even a commercial one, as I've been reflecting on it these last few years through my teaching, how do you choose the right problem and, and the right approach? It's important to be good at that kind of decision making. There are many entrepreneurs that throw their hands up and say it cannot be predicted. It's a purely stochastic undertaking and maybe some aspect of it is, you know, in or outside the confidence interval, let's say, but you got to be able to get better at this sort of stuff. And that has to be why certain entrepreneurs end up doing it better. And in every discipline, that's true, right? I mean, some people hit home runs, some people win campaigns, and, and there's a package of capabilities and judgments that they're able to make that, that, that get them there. But the field we're in, the field of entrepreneurship and certainly in decision-making, it doesn't give us a full prescription yet on how to be great. But when I came across super forecasting and then the expert political judgment book and got deeper into your work and others in the field, and now that you're pointing it out, I guess I've been rolling around in this area for quite some time, I'm starting to think that it can be discerned and defined and there are some rules to follow and behaviors that are best practices for getting to good decisions. That's part of why I wanted to get, I think, one of the leaders of the future prediction business to tell me a bit more about where you've gotten. Now, of course, you've done it in these two and a lot of your other uh, writings and, and talks. But I wonder if you see the work as being about that, about just improving everybody's decision-making. Very much so. And I think you see some of the paradoxes that are built into the work on judgment and decision-making quite clearly in the domain of entrepreneurship. On the one hand, if you were to follow classic Kahneman advice and heed the base rates of success and failure of startups, how many entrepreneurs would, have, would be able to mobilize the enthusiasm to do it? Yeah, you'd never you start. Know, <laughs> the numbers are pretty bleak. The base rates are pretty bleak, right? Depends on how you compute them, but it's, it's somewhere between 75 and 90% don't work out very well. Or yeah, I mean, that's not a job right. offer you would accept from anyone. Or <laughs> 90% of the time you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> right. So on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, there's this, this psychological reality that people who have can-do enthusiasm, can-do enthusiasm tends to be infectious. And if you're going to persuade people to do something, you need to project a high level of confidence. And it really helps if you believe it to some degree yourself. Yes, it's certainly true. Yeah. I mean, the reality distortion field is, I guess, uh, an expression that used to be attributed to, to Steve Jobs and maybe someone like Elon Musk these days, that they live in a different reality and um, somehow they're able to bring people along to that. And, and, and maybe they're right, I guess. People think they might have some insight that we don't have that are, you know, the outside in base rate, well, they have special knowledge, they must be able to, to make more correct judgments. Right. Well, of course, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs are, are pretty rare phenomena. For every, for every one of those, how many insane entrepreneurs are there? And how good will you be in identifying a true, uh, a true Steve Jobs when you, when you run into one? Because I guess that's what often is the choice you have to make. Now, I guess in, um, in, in your work, you lay out a bunch of, I guess, I don't know if it's, you don't really lay it out as like a process for good decisions, but you do, it, you do create a collection of attributes of folks that seem to make good decisions. And I wonder if uh, you want to lay out a handful of the most important ones for folks who are listening. One of the things that, one of the markers of, of better judgment in the studies I've done is um, a tolerance for complexity and dissonance. And it's a style of thinking and a style of talking that just doesn't have a lot of media appeal. It, to use the terminology of the expert judgment book, uh, the media prefer hedgehogs over fox. And hedgehogs know one big thing. They're visionaries. They have a lot of confidence. They project that very effectively. Whereas foxes are more likely to begin on the one hand, on the other hand, however, but they're continually qualifying, they're, they're multidimensional, uh, and, and many people hear that, and it sounds um, equivocal and weak. 
Yeah, dithering is not a much admired quality in folk. But I guess, you know, there are some sort of famous expressions of the uh, the hypothesis-driven, up, constantly updating point of view. Maybe John Maynard Keynes, I guess when he said to, um, maybe it was uh, a member of parliament, I've changed my mind and uh, because the facts have changed. <laughs> when the facts change my view, what do you do, sir? <laughs> With something like his line. Yes, that's the quote that's attributed to him. Yep. Yeah, but so I guess that's one big point is, um, and and this is where you introduce the hedgehog and fox stuff in in that work, and and, and you, I mean you, you, it's there everywhere, and I want to investigate a little bit your view on how the two concepts are defined in the origins. But big point I took from it not only is that the fox personality is a more nuanced one and perhaps less popular, therefore the kind of action leader or the field marshal has to adopt a uh, hedgehog guise. Uh, as they go to try to go take a hill or, you know, move their people in a certain direction. Uh, yeah. That was a big one, that, that there's a sort of a different tool for the different situation, deciding what to do versus yeah. doing it. There's a famous story that my co-author Dan Gardner worked into the super forecasting book because he's a big World War II. Um, he likes to follow World War II a lot. And the, st- the story, which is apparently which is apparently well-documented, is that right prior to... Uh, the invasion of D-Day, when Eisenhower was exhorting the troops and telling them he was confident that they would, you know, push deep into France and defeat Nazi Germany, as opposed to being, you know, thrown back into the English Channel, just as he, when he, as he was infusing them with enthusiasm, in his back pocket, he had a letter of resignation that he had written mm. in the event that the, uh, that, the, that the Normandy landing was indeed repulsed. He, he was prepared for both contingencies, and that's, I, thought, I think that's rather interesting. And are we supposed to take from the story that the guy is a fox? or that he's able to modulate his style? I think the available biographical evidence on him is pretty good now, and, and, it, and it, it's pretty clear that he was, he was a pretty subtle and nuanced guy. A fox. Yes. If you, if you, if you, if you want to use an animal metaphor, yes. Well, I do want to. I mean, this line from Archilochus, it gripped me uh, the first time I ran across it in Isaiah Berlin uh, some time ago. It's this essay that I'm sure you know very well that maybe not everyone listening has had a chance to look at. It's not long. It's amazing. It's about Tolstoy. And it's just a few pages to get started that he lays out this uh, sort of casual theory of the universe that some thinkers are hedgehogs and others are foxes. Uh, The hedgehog knows one big thing, the fox knows many things. And it's not meant to be normative. I guess it's meant to be a way of dividing the world and saying, yeah, you can find both. There's great examples of thinkers and contributors that are one or the other. And what I noticed in in your writing that that, that was really uh, a step past the, the, the place that was left by others who've who've worked on this or talked to me about it, is the hybridizing of these roles, that it's that they're not that clean and that they um, are on a spectrum. I guess you could call them hedge foxes and fox hogs or something like that, depending on which is the relatively more dominant aspect. Yes. yes Had you seen others so. um, do that spectrum or you were, because you were trying to quantitatively measure and categorize folks, you just found that people weren't falling that cleanly into one or the other? I think that distinction worked well in expert political judgment because it, it resonated with a lot of the subject matter experts we were studying who were familiar with Isaiah Berlin and the hedgehog fox distinction and it made intuitive sense to them. I don't think it makes intuitive sense to the wider world. In the wider world, I think you, when, when you look at the, the kind of psychological work on cognitive style and personality and so forth, the hedgehog fox distinction looks a lot like the openness factor in the big five. It looks a lot like um, need for closure, tolerance of ambiguity. There are a lot of personality scales out there, 
that have family resemblance. Maybe the, the, the strongest might be John Barron's active open-mindedness measure. And these scales, you know, they're not, psychological measurement is noisy, and these scales aren't as highly correlated as you would expect if they're all measuring exactly the same thing, which they're not. They are measuring somewhat the same thing, and, and there, there are reasonable correlations among them. The surprising thing I found, and maybe I didn't read it correctly in, in the expert political judgment research, was the strongest correlate was just the self-ID question. Are you a fox or a hedgehog? Well, that's what I meant when I said the subject matter experts got it. I don't, I don't, yeah. you, you wouldn't, you, you couldn't walk up to a person on the street and say, are you a hedgehog or a fox? <laughs> they, they would look at you as though you're insane. So the folks that were in those surveys, you feel had some depth on the topic. You hadn't simply introduced an idea with a one-sentence explanation. Okay, which one are you? Well, there we were did folks that, that were coming we, to the table. It, it's not as though we assumed that everybody knew it, but but a lot of them did know it. And we did and we did offer a shorthand definition to jog the memories of those who might have <laughs> blurred on. Okay. Yeah, you know, that actually is, uh, to me, that's an aha. And I wonder if the general population would do okay. I mean, it is an idea that's gone a lot further than I would have ever expected. I mean, there are a lot of cool bits of philosophy that I... Uh, have come across over the years, but it is funny how how widely broadcasted this distinction seems to be lately. You know, like the icon or the whatever the little logo, for example, used by Nate Silver for his five twenty nine five thirty nine blog is the fox, right? And do you think that has some kind of line of of causality to to your work, or or you think he came to it himself? Because I do see it a lot out there, more and more and more. I feel like it's uh, it's it's gathering a bit of steam. There are many paths to make to make to the, to the fox hedgehog distinction. Uh, Nate, Nate did interview me when I was still at Berkeley uh, back around. Oh gosh, when was it? Around 2006 or so. Before before the signal and the noise came out. When did the signal and the noise came out? In 2009 or 10? We had a nice lunch at the Durant Hotel and <laughs> uh, we, we talked about it. But it is, is it your perception that it's it's out there and gathering some steam? Or even in your mind, have you moved past its usefulness? You were giving the feeling a minute ago that maybe you thought it was a cool way to get started, perhaps not very widely recognizable and, and perhaps not a concept that can do a lot of work on its own. I think it's a useful shorthand device. And I think that people who have many mental models of the subject they're trying to understand on average are likely to do better than people who only have a single mental model. Hmm. I think that you, you can show that sort of thing can be shown experimentally. It can be shown correlationally in real world situations as an expert political judgment. So there's evidence for that. And it makes a certain amount of logical sense as well. Some of the hallmarks, I guess, of your super forecaster types are certainly nuance, uh, willingness to update a view, um, to have a sort of gradient of, of levels on, on an answer and its ingredients. And I suppose you were suggesting that's pretty close to this openness idea from the big five personality framework. Uh, I guess, you know, I, I like to think of that one as, as openness or taste for new ideas or for adventure. If I were to ask you to come to a conference in Las Vegas on Wednesday, the super high openness person would say, yes, let me check my calendar. And the very closed person <laughs> would say, probably not. Um, but thank you for mentioning it as kind of an automatic response. There is another dimension there, though. It is the kind of collaborative spirit, uh, which I think of as a hallmark of a fox over a hedgehog. The hedgehog I sort of visualize, uh, you know, with the candle at uh, up all night, detailing out the footnotes to a complicated paper, as opposed to the fox who uh, attends a colleague's lunch in a different department and comes back with some wacky analogy from, uh, you know, Russian history that might be relevant to philosophy, for example, to project a little bit on Isaiah Berlin 
So do you think there's yeah. like a sociability extroversion thing that's an important driver um, too? You know, I, I would be careful, and I don't think all these personality things are are, are tightly, it's quite as tightly bundled. I, I, there's not much evidence, for example, that extroversion and openness are are related to each other. Yeah, if, if anything, I would expect. No, I think they're independent, aren't they? Oh yeah, well the big big five is designed to to be independent, but I don't think there's much of a cor- correlation, and I don't think that. Well, for example, even creativity is a, is a tricky thing with respect to fox and hedgehog. I mean, in some ways, Einstein was was very was obviously very playful and creative, but he was also quite quite hedgehoggy and prone to quite dogmatic statements like, you know, God does not play dice with the cosmos, uh, which triggered a debate with the considerably foxier physicist Niels Bohr that you know Einstein stopped telling God what to do. <laughs> I didn't know that second very lovely line. And so I guess what, it, what what I should take then is that you think in this sort of paradigmatic, excellent judgment, super forecaster type, extroversion, introversion, you don't think correlate strongly. I mean, it is it is a bit in your work that the best forecasters seemed to be willing to join groups, comment a lot, refine other people's ideas versus those that worked more independently. Well, it's true that I mean the super forecasters, we mostly, most of the super forecasters we study did work well together in teams. But there certainly were some of them who preferred to work off on their own. And some of them, for example, preferred to, to do solo work inside prediction markets as opposed to forecasting tournaments. When pr- prediction markets, of course, are very much you're, you're on your own, right? Yeah, for sure. For example, I spoke to your colleague Warren Hatch, who is president of Good Judgment, Inc., and um, he told me a story about his style over time. And he had been a quite enthusiastic prediction market guy and a sort of solo operator. But he reported it as a big learning of the first year of the Good Judgment Project when he was participating in this, I guess, failure in that first year that he had to change his style. And he took that, he he was sort of presenting that as a lesson of of how to improve your forecasting style to sort of get in the mix with with others. I mean, I suppose you can be quite talented and not have all of the attributes of, of the highest performers. Is that the way you're drawing the distinction? Or are you just rather saying, no, 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 people can be great solo and others are much better in teams? I think the latter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How interesting. How interesting. And is it because it, it protects their independence of point of view against the sort of norming that happens sometimes in a you know a group thinky kind of setting? I think that's part of it. You know, some people are loners. What what, what can I say? And I I think that's a dimension as you point out in the big the way the big five is structured. It's pretty much orthogonal to the to open mindedness. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do, maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, There are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. 
So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. And, you know, I, I appreciate you're sort of putting up with this tour of some of these other psychometric frameworks and trying to understand better what makes for good judgment and, and sort of applying it to this uh, fox and hedgehog distinction, which perhaps you don't, you don't want to own it. No, it's very useful what you're doing. I, it, I think putting it in this larger, larger perspective is, is the right thing to do. Yeah, well, because there is this one other attribute, and um, I think it's more vivid in the Myers-Briggs framework. The, there's this thing about judging and perceiving, I guess, which is the, the last of the four, uh, for those who are familiar with those four uh, elements mm-hmm. of the Myers-Briggs framework. And the, the judger is someone who has their uh, currency and numerical order in their wallet, let's say, or they're on time for the meeting, or uh, they want to lock down the next step and just have it agreed and not reopen the matter later, whereas the perceiver uh, feels a bit more serendipitous and um ready to follow an idea in a surprising direction because it might be promising or just fun to do it. Uh, and, and it does resemble a bit the concept of openness in, in the big five, but, you know, the judger kind of gets mad when people are late or when a decision gets reopened and the perceiver sort of loves it. And they are, they are quite different styles for making decisions and dealing with people. I, I wonder if you see it as really just duplicative of that openness theme that we were on or whether it may also have a, a relevant dimension on making good judgments. And here's my specific item that I had in mind, my specific behavior. We, we all know the person who uh, sends the message with typos and then the other person who has the 10-paragraph email sitting in drafts for the last 10 days when it was due eight days ago uh, as an answer <laughs> to a question. And so this sort of sent, not drafts behavior, which I think kind of helps organize the world a little bit, or, or somebody who shoots their mouth off or thinks instead, throughout the entire meeting and sends a memo later. I mean, you see these different behaviors. I think of them as a, a, a kind of judging versus perceiving style uh, with a taste for perfection and sharpness as a thing that kind of animates it. And, and I wonder how you feel about that just with forecasters in general and, and its relation to foxes and hedgehogs and openness. We've never, uh, you know, applied the, the MBTI typology to um, super forecasters and forecasters. So I, I can't comment directly on the, um, the Myers-Briggs taxonomy. But uh, I can say this, and I guess some of my colleagues who do not like the Myers-Briggs will not like my saying this, but I did do some work a long time ago that, that looked at uh, the different cognitive styles of managers, and we had MBTI data on them, and we found that the, um, gosh, I guess it would be INTP was most correlated with a multi-model style of thinking that would be more characteristic of super forecasters, although we weren't looking at super forecasters in that context. The introverted, uh, intuitive or conceptual, uh, the thinking or rational, and then the perceiving or more open or spontaneous. That, that yeah, type. I, yeah, I think I or E didn't matter that much. I see. So the N and the T are important, and you think the P, the sort of openness of the P, lets different models be used yeah. either in teams or in a problem-solving. That feels plausible. Yeah. yeah, that was an article that came out in Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in the early 90s. I could send it to you if you want. Yeah, I'd be very interested to check it out. I will have a look, and, and maybe when I get this podcast up, I'll, I'll include a few links to some of these, these nice papers. I mean, Myers-Briggs, it, it, it does happen, unfortunately, to not be very well supported in the research. And the reason it's unfortunate, I guess, is it seems so handy. People seem to like it quite a lot. It's, it's used quite a lot in business. And I first ran across it. I mean, it almost seemed to me when I was first introduced to that I wish I had been educated on it. It did not 
appear in any of my education well through graduate school, even as a cognitive science PhD, but I ran into it at McKinsey. And it had a really big impact on me in my understanding of how different people behave in general and how they think. And I guess it's still a lot more popular than the well, the more well-supported psychometric approaches. Is it, do you think that's fair to say in your estimation? Well, I'm not familiar with what HR departments around the country are using nowadays, you know, with what the, all the various consultancies and trainers are using. But my guess is, you know, that the big, the big five has a lot more scientific support, MBTI does. But I, I wouldn't say the MBTI is a total zero the way some of my colleagues would. I think we did find some evidence that things hung together the way they should if we're measuring something real. You can, you can take that for what it's worth. Yeah, so now coming to the, the topic of how real all this stuff is, right? I've been kind of rolling around with you in the relationship of certain personality and behavioral styles to getting to good decisions. And I think like the big governing thought on it actually is what you started with, that when it's time for action, there, there seems to be one package of styles. And when it's time for making the right decision, there's a, a rather different package of styles for, for a lot of reasons about external perception, but also about internal conviction. And I guess the deepest question that I had on my mind, and I'm hoping you can shed some light on this, is uh, how real it is. When I run into this in my sort of surface level contact with the literature, the doubts about the reality of whether it's Myers-Briggs or the Big Five or even the Fox or the Hedgehog, the doubts about the reality are on whether they are natural or um, sort of true and unchanging durable facts about different people's minds. Like if you really are a hedgehog or if it's simply uh, a certain set of behavioral patterns that you can turn on and off at will. Would you say that's what the doubts about reality are about, whether they're really real? I mean, because as a set of vocabulary, I mean, how can it not be? It's an interesting question. I mean, there, there are varying degrees of, of psychological reality here. I, I, so I suppose some people would argue that personality disposition is, quote unquote, real to the degree it has a large heritability coefficient in identical twin studies. So if you, if you can show that it seems to be in people's DNA, you know, introversion, extroversion, there's, there's a significant heritability coefficient for that. There, in fact, I think there are significant heritability coefficients for all of the big five. That doesn't mean that you can't change them. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that some people don't have the capacity to turn them off or on. Some people are more rigidly trait-like and some people are more malleable and strategic and have, have a higher, higher order control over their behavior. It's a complicated pattern. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, as a, you know, the, the sort of pragmatic attitude versus the foundational knowledge attitude, I think, on these topics are, are a little bit different. And you're certainly right that both uh, nature, nurture, and context have a lot to do with all these expressed behaviors. I mean, lately, it's, it's starting to appear. I was just with a, with a researcher from, from Stanford Medical School who seems to be able to show a lot of malleability in sex and gender. So it's not even just genes. It's not even just early development in the womb. It's not even just hormones from the mother. It's not even just birth and early socialization and then development in the teens and adolescents. Even well after that, there's stuff you can do to radically change behaviors that are often strongly correlated with somebody's sexual identity. So like aggressiveness in males or nurturing in females. And so it's quite amazing that it almost doesn't matter what your genes are because an intervention can totally change a bunch of the ways that some of these sexual types are expressed. And if that's true on things like sex and gender, it's got to be true on things like you know, managerial behavior or some of these more high order blended traits. So on, on the foundational reality part, of it, it's perhaps a lot more malleable than, than we might have guessed even when it is real. Of course, as the pragmatist and somebody who's trying to help myself and others make good decisions, lead people, you know, solve problems, that pragmatic dimension is actually the really important one. 
So whether or not the psychometrics are real, whether or not the hedgehog or the fox are really real, doesn't matter as long as they're descriptively helpful. However, it is helpful to know how durable they are and how hard they are to change. And yeah, these forecasters so. you worked with, did they change much? Can you change them? Did you find that when you told them why the other teams won, they all got better? Well, that's to some degree. I mean, people re respond in different ways. Um, some, some people get discouraged and drop out. And the other people, and they may drop out because they have, not because they're not gritty, but because they have other conflicting obligations. Whether you're going to persist with something like this, whether, whether you say to yourself, oh, I want to make this a mission to see how well calibrated I can be as a judge of possible futures. I, I want to be a, a super forecaster. I want to learn to make well calibrated probability judgments of a wide range of things, everything from sports to what Putin is going to do next to how, where the U.S.-China trade war is going to go. And I want to be able to cover the globe and be a nuanced uh, simulator of news. If you make a, a, a deep existential commitment to that and you, and you have a certain basic level of, of fluid intelligence and open-mindedness and some capacity to work well with teammates if you're in, you know, on a team, if you have those things, uh, then, then it clicks. If you're pretty smart and you want to do it, you can follow the recipe and you can be great. You can be consistently better than average. <laughs> you won't, you're going to improve at least you, you, some of that. You won't quickly revert to the mean. <laughs> How about that? You, you won't show <laughs> rapid regression toward the mean. <laughs> well, that is but, a lovely know, nuanced judgment for your part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's the gold standard in finance, right? Because it's so hard for, for active fund managers, for example, to do appreciably better than, than Vanguard and the market benchmarks. So the work that you have turned to now... Um, I, I presume you have long since pushed past the topics that you made popular in the work that, that I'm familiar with. Where has this, these topics, where have they taken you now? Well, right now we're involved in a really interesting competition to see which teams can do a better job of extracting the correct lessons from history. When I say that, you might think I'm crazy. How are we ever going to determine, for example, whether liberals or conservatives have drawn the, have drawn the correct lessons from the end of the Cold War? when liberals think that the Reagan administration was essentially irrelevant or an impediment to the end of the Cold War, and conservatives think that the Reagan administration was instrumental in the relatively peaceful end of the Cold War. You can't go back on your time machine and take out President Reagan and replace him with a second-term Carter presidency and a Mondale follow-up and see how the Cold War evolves, right? That's not a capacity mere mortals have. <laughs> so Yeah, are you going to you, hire you can't, some science fiction writers or something? Right, you're, yeah, no, you're right. So here's what the people I'm working with have done, uh, and, and that is they have, uh, they have turned to simulations, complex simulations, complex simulated worlds. Like when the, the, the first one they chose to work with is a very popular computer game known as Civilization. And people are making predictions essentially in simulated worlds. Now, the nice thing about simulated worlds, you know, the bad thing is it's not the real world, so it's artificial. But the nice thing about simulated worlds is that you can test the counterfactuals. You can say, oh, you know what? If you made this move here, this set of events would have occurred. And you can rerun the simulation 100 times, and you can see what the probability distribution of possible worlds looks like, right? You say, well, you know, 84% of the time with Reagan policies, <laughs> the Cold War ends pretty peacefully, but 14% of the time it spirals into a serious escalation and, and so forth. They, obviously, that kind of knowledge is not available here <laughs> in the real world. But that sort of knowledge is available when these simulated civilizations interact in the computer game. It's wired into the complex systemic logic of the programming. And the question is, 
how quickly can can really good forecasters and smart thoughtful people how how quickly can they figure out the causal structure of the game oh how fascinating so you're using the analogy of course of the end of the soviet union but a game like civilization although it is so fun and really rich and complicated is far simpler and in a way it sort of presumes the answer because you sort of know the answer all the you know the game is designed it has some there is some definitive truth about the way the system works that can be discovered but you're not so much studying that system you're studying how people update their views and their post hoc reasoning about events where they made predictions am i right so you'll take like two groups and you'll show them the game and you'll stop it halfway through and say hey what's going to happen game continues and then you can go back and simulate it a thousand different ways and the question is how does that observer change their own thinking yes and of course we're not just interested in the civilization game we're we're in, the more generally we're interested in how how skillfully can people make sense of historical runs of complex social systems right so it might be you know the sort of complex simulations of businesses that are used in business schools it might be war games that are used in the defense department they, they they're all there are all sorts of uh, complex simulations you could you could look at in this way. Right. And all these complex simulations have the, the benefit of being knowable since they're designed by people. And what we're really studying on these is not what is the right answer, but how are people making the right answers or making their post-hoc reasoning about those answers that they gave. The hope is that if you can develop ways of training people to do better in these simulations, that those skills will generalize into the real world. A related theme that's sort of trendy to all this uh, forecasting and judgment stuff, which I think is one of the colossal learnings of the past few decades for, I think, humanity itself. Uh, there's this related sort of problem in politics that seems to trouble people. How do you change someone's mind, which when posed in isolation or in the context of some kind of political opponent or some people who support the wrong president or whatever, it can be quite frustrating and uh, it seems intractable. And from time to time, you see these kind of head fakes where Oh, if you, you know, go door to door and say, hi, I'm gay, you can change people's opinions about gay people. I don't know that that ends up being well supported. When it's posed in this way, many people wring their hands about it. And at the same time, it seems like our society is struggling with the new version of brainwashing and falling into these rabbit holes. And, you know, 9,000 YouTube videos later, you turn out to be a fundamentalist or a jihadist or something like that. I wonder if this topic of changing people's minds has, has caught your attention. Oh, very much so. I mean, one, one of the defining features of, of the best forecasters in, in our tournaments has always been that they're, that they're pretty flexible and rapid belief updaters. But they don't change their minds in really spiky, dramatic ways usually, although that occasionally happens when the evidence is dramatic. But they, they're known for making relatively granular belief adjustments. So you say, okay, what are the odds I've got a fair coin here? Is it 50-50? And you look at a couple of coin tosses and you say, oh, okay, I'm going to change it. Maybe it's a little bit of a bias this way. We're moving from 50 to 52% biased or 54, 57 as the evidence gradually accumulates. And so they're in the same way they're gradually updating their beliefs about whether Brexit is going to occur or when it's going to occur and whether, you know, uh, what's going to happen to bond yield spreads between uh, Germany and Italy as a function of the populist government in Italy. They're granular and they're willing to make incremental adjustments. A great psychologist once said that, you know, fundamentally most people, the natural mode of thinking about beliefs for most people is a three-dial setting. You know, things are either going to happen, yes, things are either not, they're not going to happen, no, or maybe. We have yes, no, and maybe. And the best forecasters make granular distinctions along the probability scale. They're pretty good at distinguishing 60-40 bets from 40-60 bets. That's what you look for in a, in a great poker player. That's what you look for in a, in a great investor. 
um, and, and a great venture capitalist and so forth. Yeah, and so if this is a virtue of the best decision makers, it's a societal problem, I guess, in the context I was laying out. That mindset is not more prevalent, that there aren't people who are out there and ready to change their minds. Or I guess you could look at it in the reverse and say, actually, it's very dangerous that there are a lot of people that are ready to change their minds and adopt crazy views. <laughs> so obviously, you have a fairly naturalistic strategy of, of trying to describe decision makers and figure out what makes them more and less successful, but I'm, I'm wondering now uh, a little bit along the lines of, uh, I guess it's a line from Marx from the theses on Feuerbach, the philosophers have only described the world. The point, however, is to change it. And I wonder if you think that your work sets the table for a prescription or some kind of you know, broad social remedy. I mean, I guess you can make some hedge fund predictors better, and that'd be great if they follow your, your rule book, but can we propagate it more broadly to make uh, lots of people better? Right. My wife is very interested in doing that with forecasting tournaments. And we did a paper together in the journal Cognition that came out in 2018 on whether forecasting tournaments can make, whether being randomly assigned to participate in a forecasting tournament can make you more reasonable or can, can depolarize <laughs> your attitudes on topics that are not being discussed inside the forecasting tournament. So is it some kind of spillover effect? Because forecasting tournaments encourage you to be granular. They reward you for making nuanced distinctions along a probability scale, not just yes, no. And does that style of thinking kind of percolate into how you think about politics more generally or economics more generally? So a lesson that a self-improvement-minded person could draw, I guess, is there are many wonderful qualities that the best forecasters have. They're probably not, you know, sort of fixed and genetic. They can be learned and developed. They look like a bunch of the themes you were laying out as we've been speaking, but many more besides. And I think just the core of it is is, is nuance and, and openness to a variety of different models to, to, to updating your view. And that there are certain times when perhaps this forecasting mindset is not the thing that's called for. There are other moments when other types of behaviors have to be mobilized. It doesn't make the forecasting mindset wrong, but rather appropriate for a certain context. I think that's an excellent gist of our conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending so much time with me, laying it all out. I think the world would be a lot better if uh, people took on board a lot of what you've been discovering and sharing with us. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>